In three, two, and also a heads up, next week we're doing the Battle of Winterfell, Game of Thrones. That'll be exciting. Okay. We could probably start this clip at like 43 seconds or something also. Um, that's the one with the, where he tries the suit on? Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Yeah, I have something to say. Okay. This is episode 36. Welcome to TGE, the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a special movie, Ant-Man. I'm excited because um, I haven't seen it. Uh, Tyler, how are you? <laughs> Good, Sven. How are you doing this fine Easter Sunday, which we're recording ahead of our release Monday evening? I'm doing really good. Uh, I should explain I haven't seen it because you told me I should not watch the movie. So that's what I did. You wanted to surprise me with no. something. No, no. I said don't do any research on it, which is very different. Very, very different. We last The reason we're doing Ant-Man is because last week we did a trailer for Joker. And this and then, you know, this weekend, this coming weekend, the Avengers film's coming out. So we thought it would be fun to do one of those since Sven, I don't think, has seen any Marvel films at all. Um, so we asked listeners to send uh, requests for a possible Avengers-themed scene that we could dissect to kind of talk about the genre, and uh, we didn't get any. But uh, we, I decided that it, for a few reasons that we'll talk about that this little clip from Ant-Man might be a fun one. I couldn't think of a really distinct one prior to this, but I think there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about in this for what we talk about on this show. So then sent it to Sven, sent it to Sven, Svend it to Sen, and... <laughs> Told him I had a bit of trivia about it that I think he will. That's a very, very spend specific, very spend specific for those that listen to the show and watch the this guy at his YouTube channel. Uh, that'll be interesting to see if he picked up on in this stylistically. Okay, cool. I'm excited. Before we get to but it, there was no grand waiver to to not watch the sh- ep- the movie. Now that said. <laughs> We do want to thank everyone who listens to the show for spreading the word, for subscribing to the podcast. I want to thank Ross, letting us know that he actually did ask Siri to subscribe to the podcast on his iPhone, and it worked. I don't know if you can ask Siri to do anything <laughs> on anything else. I don't know why I had to specify it was his iPhone, but it worked for him. He had to unsubscribe to do it, which we don't recommend, but we appreciate uh, you subscribing and spreading the word. So thank you, and thanks for doing the test, Ross. Very nice. Very cool. Well, Ross was also the one that suggested to go through the AFI list of the top recommended movies that you should be seeing if you're an aspiring Uh filmmaker. And we're lucky enough to get a seat to study at AFI. These are the films that you're supposed to have watched beforehand. We went through the first six last time, and I still owe you the other six. And I didn't tell Tyler these, so he still doesn't know which they are. And I want to challenge him again, and he's going to challenge me. And we're both going to probably fail. Um, yeah, my challenge is a lot easier, light, like less embarrassing for Sven not to get. But, the t- you know, the thing with this is what we should have in all rights done is watch the rules of the game this week and done a scene from that. But we just don't quite have the time for that. Uh, I haven't watched any movies in the last week, but that's that's all going to change. It, it uh, is all going to change. Weeks, so. Because um, it's similar to me. I have another two weeks of just like a lot of stuff going on and i'll know more and i can talk about it more next week but after that then things should go really easy it should be a real nice summer 
And yes, um, before we get to it, are you ready for it's these so not going to be. And one thing you'll learn in post-production is it's not going to be <laughs> when you say that. Okay, let's let's see what the new mo- the movie is this weekend. The goal is you say the film and I tell you the a plot outline and who directed it. Yes. So Okay. Without cheating. Without cheating. Well, number 7 is kind of easy, My Darling Clementine. Okay, so My Darling Clementine's a John Ford film? Yes. About his darling Clementine? Are you Googling? No, I know it's a John Ford film. I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen it, though. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's a Western. I mean, I said it's about his darling Clementine, and you said, are you Googling? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's what, that's what Google comes back with. Little um, just, to be a human, just to be a responsible human being, though, I am now putting it into the, the platform Google, our sponsor. Um, my darling Clementine, ooh, uh-oh. Directed by John Ford, as I presumed, and the brief plot synopsis. Oh, it's a Wyatt Earps story, right? Okay, I remember. Damn it. All right, I actually, ooh, there's a really good chance I'm going to watch the, this this week, and maybe we'll do a scene from it. Yes, we should pick on a couple of these. Oh, we definitely, we're going to do all of them, especially the ones I haven't seen. And I have the Criterion channel, so if this comes up on it, that's what it will be. And we should have been doing something from that. Anyways, let's not talk about how we're letting the podcast down. All right, next one. <laughs> this one is a tricky one. I totally okay. did not, I have no recollection of this one. It's called Intimate Lighting. Okay, I, I have no idea what Intimate Lighting is. Okay, it is directed by Ivan Passa, and I think it's a Czech Republican movie or Czech movie. About two mm-hmm. guys, one of them is a Trumpist, and he comes back into town, and all kinds of crazy shit happens. That was what awesome. Wikipedia had to offer. Okay, let's, okay do, so, let's do the next one. We're doing this quick. Rocco and his brothers. Okay, so that's the Italian film. Um, I've seen that. Uh, it's great. <laughs> Director um, is? Don't they get? Isn't, isn't there like a boxing a boxing plot to that, or someone has to throw a fight or something? Isn't there? I don't. I know that. I know. I believe it's Visconti. I could be incorrect though. You are correct. It's Lucino Visconti. It's okay, a good. 1960 Italian film inspired by an episode from the novel Il Ponte della Gisolfa, set in Milan. Mm-hmm. It tells the story of an immigrant family from the south and its disintegration into society in the industrial north cool okay cool the next one i definitely remember i actually remember seeing this in berlin at the tacheles which is a very famous like bombed out building that is like half open and uh, became like an art installation in the 80s and the movie is the bicycle thief Mm. another italian film I know there's a, the older guy and the, and the young boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a small story that matters in the big picture. I feel like it's like the, when somebody loses something that means everything to them, like it, their whole existence dependence on this bike and then tries yeah. to recapture that becomes... Right. The guy's not a thief, but the, his bike is stolen. Yeah. It's one of those movies that I think film schools utilize to say, okay, it doesn't matter what you what your story is, how small it is, it's how you tell it. And this is one of those films. Yes. So gripping. And directed by Vittorio De Sica. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Cool. The Third Man. 
Okay, well, that's the film that Orson Welles is in that is not directed by him. It's sort of a great, um, I want to call it like a spy thriller, an espionage thriller that takes place in Europe somewhere. Okay, Vienna. Yeah, it's a really it's a really great film. It is Carol Reed. Oh right, yeah, it's really great and it has amazing it. shots yeah. from the uh, underground sewage system. Yeah, and an early uh, Graham Green thing, right? Yep. Post World War Vienna, World War Two. Beautiful. Okay. Okay, last one. Les Infants to Paradis. Les Infants. That one I have seen. Uh, but is it, wait, wait, that's the one where they, they take, is it the, that the one where they take the kids in during the World War Two or no? Um, the Children of the Olymp. No, it's totally not what I thought it was. It's a 1945 French epic romantic drama directed by Michael Carney. It was made during the German occupation of France during World War Two set against the Parisian theater scene of 1820s and 1830s. It tells the story of a it's beautiful courtesan, Garance, and the four men who love her in their own ways. But it's, uh, it's directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Directed by Marcel Carnet is what I have here. Huh. Children right, of well, Paradise. Well, you're looking at the wrong movie. <laughs> we... <laughs> so there you go. Those are the six movies. That's Make this really nice and tight. And it'll be beautiful. God. If you want to we see the entire list of films, as well as a series of books that AFI recommended to have read yeah. to really um, build a foundation of your storytelling t- tool set, I'm going to leave a link in the podcast description. So, I mean, that was embarrassing because we had Google and didn't even describe it right. And now, to make it even worse, people that are already sick and disgusted with us can now vomit all over themselves as we segue from not understanding those fine European masterpieces into discussing <laughs> the Marvel tentpole franchise films nice. with Be- this week's scene <laughs> from Before Ant-Man. we do, though, I wanted to share one more thing. And this is a comment by um, someone about oh, about Whiplash. Reservoir Dogs? About oh. Whiplash. And this is actually, this, this really piqued my interest. Um, this comes from Yum Mountain 4, and this is on Reddit. He writes, former employee of Blumhouse here. Damien storyboarded Whiplash entirely on yellow post-it notes and kept it in a, a three-ring binder. Not even good drawings, just stick people with uh, stick faces and some errors showing where the camera should move. The binder ended up in the pile of files they have for every movie, and I ran into it one day while looking for something else. I was amazed how every single stick drawing matched every shot in the film to a T. I also remember shooting the shit with the casting director a while back, and she mentioned how Damien wanted to cast every extra too, which is unheard of. You usually just give a breakdown to extras casting and they handle it. But the casting director did it for him. So every person you see on screen was handpicked by the director. As a filmmaker myself, I always think back to that binder and how powerful one's intention can be, even if you can only commu- communicate with sticks. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really cool. That's a great insight to have uh, on, on the... For on sure. Show. 
thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no, I I did storyboards in my days, and they were very precise. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a great film, but it's a helpful tool. <laughs> or that your DP is going to look at them. <laughs> That's true too. So, in your case, so now the f- okay. So the other thing I wanted to comment on was the uh, someone posted a comment about Reservoir Dogs with the link that it was. We'd said when we did Reservoir Dogs that we. I had said that it was recorded at a low frame rate, at like 10 frames a second, but apparently it was, I heard that on the commentary, I thought, but apparently it was filmed at 24 frames a second, and then slowed, played back at 14 frames a second, so it wasn't actually captured at the lower frame rate, it was uh, printed at it, let's say. Yes, that makes sense, and that's what it looked like to me, like that this was a decision in post to slow more the shots that this wasn't planned yeah and i um, i don't know about maybe you're saying it was a decision in post yeah because um if you would have known that you want to do a nice slow-mo up front you would have shot at a different frame rate you would have shot at a higher frame rate like in the hundreds or something so right that it has that smooth feeling this looks very stuttery yeah Touche. Well, yeah, it definitely looks stuttery. It's just, yeah, I guess it's tr- chicken or the egg when it was decided. But uh, speaking of chicken or the egg, should we talk about Ant-Man? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So Ant-Man, just to set it up real quick, is a... Sven's not allowed to do any Googling on it. Oh. Ant-Man came out a few years ago. It's obviously one of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe entries. It came out ahead of Avengers... Or sorry, I always I always want to call it an Avengers movie, but it came out ahead of Captain America: Civil War, which was sort of an Avengers movie. I'm not sure which number it is in the timeline of Marvel films, but it was definitely them branching out a little bit and trying characters that were a little tougher. But there is actually a really interesting production history of how this movie came about, and it had certainly been planned by a specific filmmaker who had a passion for the character for quite some time. So once the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of became its own distinct thing, it became a little tricky to continue with that particular director, which we will we will talk about. But it came out in 2015, and we're going to look at it, and we're also, you know, I think what we're going to talk about for this, and something that I think the Marvel films really do well, is having clearly defined powers for their characters and every character is kind of unique and distinct and that's what makes the team-ups um, a lot of fun is that the origin stories are sent kind of defining these powers and then you get to see them mesh together which is true of obviously you know Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and uh, Black Panther has a really cool one but something I thought was kind of weirdly confusing in uh, Captain Marvel is what exactly <laughs> you just do anything like I don't I don't I don't get it that was an issue I had with that film did so anyways ahead of can I ask a question yeah did this movie come out after Deadpool or before um that's a good question I'm gonna guess it came after Deadpool came out is 2016 so it was the year before now why do you ask because it looks like it's a Deadpool ripoff okay <laughs> <laughs> you mean just the look of the costume no just the, the tone Oh, interesting. Well, what do you know? Well, we're going to talk a lot about the tone. Hmm. Um, Okay. Well, very cool. I mean, they're both Marvel properties. Hmm. So, should we take a look at this clip? And I guess to set this clip up is Paul Rudd's playing the the guy Ant-Man. There's a couple different Ant-Man historically in the comics. There's Hank Pym that Michael Douglas is playing, who and Paul Rudd's playing a guy called... 
Scott Lang and who has stolen uh, Hank Pym's Ant-Man suit that he created um, from his house. And now it turns out that Michael Douglas is kind of testing him when he puts it on. So he has no idea what this thing is and he's just putting it on. Mm -hmm. Cool. So what we usually do on this podcast is we actually pick a scene that is publicly available. There's a link in the description of the podcast so you can watch along as we are looking at the scene and describing what's going on. You don't have to if you can't. We'll go back and we analyze it afterwards. It's always nice to look at a scene specifically to look at some things that they're doing and see if that makes them unique, if this is something interesting, something special that we potentially could be using as filmmakers ourselves or something we could appreciate as film lovers. All right, let's do it. Okay, so we're going to start it when I say click. So three, and you want to describe this, Finn? No, <laughs> I can. Yeah, All let's right. do it. We'll team up. All right, three, two, click. All right, he's All right, pulling so out a um, helmet. He's all confused. Uh -huh. Reverse shot, he's looking somewhere. And we're <laughs> cutting, we're compressing time. He's sitting in a bathtub. Is he Googling something? Is he programming something? We don't know. He's flipping the mirror and he's looking into the mirror. He's wearing the whole suit. He's hitting the bathtub with his legs. He wants to step into it so he gets a better look at his suit in the mirror. This reminds me kind of like Terminator, Rambo, a little bit. People walk in. He's hiding in the bathtub. Sorry? Yeah. I, mean, I, I forget who they are, but I think they might be adversaries. Uh, he sees Maybe these not. buttons on his hands. He presses one, presses the other. Boom. He's little. He's the size of an ant in just a cool-looking, greasy old bathtub. Yeah, and then it's cool how they establish his size, because that's like a big part of this, is establishing this aspect of the film <laughs> is his true size. Camera pulls this is a funny back way to do it. all the way across the bathtub to give us some scale. Uh-huh. And there's a cool thing I want to talk about in that. And then Michael Douglas pops in. We can suddenly hear him. He's kind of, to some extent, maybe planned this. Michael Pena's great performance <laughs> coming in. I think they're friends at this point. They might have been friends all along. They're all like thieves together, I think. They work together. Okay, he's turning on the water. I don't know why he did that, but now Ant-Man is in trouble. He's running. It's like an avalanche of water. He gets caught up in it. <laughs> Instead of his face mask. And he gets thrown out of the bathtub. Lands on the ground, crashes, breaks the tile. Not Right, breaks the tile, which is establishing an important aspect of this suit. And then we have Michael Douglas's line saying... Something about the suit being strong. He drops into like a crevice or crack. And he's now in the subfloor going through the ceiling of another <laughs> room, which happens to be a nightclub. He's on top well, of a record. Right. And the fun thing to me about this is this is we could talk about previs. Because I don't know how in Great what world. Scratch. Yeah. Oh, you love record scratches. Um, I. Okay, so he's running through the shoes. Yeah, he um, tries not to get stomped on. He runs yeah. across the floor. And he does get stomped on and actually fights it. You know, it doesn't get crushed. He pushes the foot back, which is interesting. He slides into another grid. 
floor grid. He's on a carpet. It was a Lego piece. And a vacuum cleaner is <laughs> sucking him up. And he's right. like, him and the Lego piece are both like in a, in a <laughs> tornado-like swirl. He escapes right. somehow through the back, runs under a door. He runs under the door, yeah. He gets shot out of the bag. And he faces a rat. rat. Which he's scared of. He runs towards the red trap. The trap goes off. He's on it and gets catapulted outside onto a car. <laughs> Makes a little dent in it. And then he expands and he's normal size again. And, and Michael Douglas has been enjoying it. <laughs> so, just a couple of things I want, I want to say about that scene why I think it's a fun one to look at for this is that you know, these films and this franchise, and particularly with the new character, they have everything writing on a scene like that. Because yeah. that scene is not only establishing his powers, not only establishing what makes it, what the fun and, and games of it is. Yeah. They like, you know, we, we like to say, um, you know, we're, it's just showing you all the fun that can be had, but also it's very clearly defining what the rules of this suit are and doing it in a fun way. And something that I was trying to explain during the clip that I think is so funny is that always like watching it, I was like, come on. Like there's just in the middle of the day in this like shot out New York apartment building, <laughs> there's just a full on like disco party going on <laughs> downstairs. Right. Like it's it's just something that screamed you know, they had a lot of work they'd gotten going on in the previous, I assume, or like, you know, like just a lot had been done with that where there was just no, they just had to go with it. And there was like no backing out, you know, and there's a lot of fun of like the disco shoe magnifying him and, and stuff like that. But it's cool because it has to, like it, it's accomplishing a few things in that with the scale of it, if we look at specifically, what do we want to say here? Um, like 50, 57, where he's he's shrunk and it's panning around. Yeah. You know, he's much smaller and we understand, but just because of foreground and stuff like that, we don't get the full sense of how small he really is even there. Yeah. And then we go to this close-up at 106 where we pan out and we, we really get... It's a cool way of doing that thing where in, in the previous shot, we get a sense of how we're going to be seeing him. Yeah. And then at 106 with that pan back, it gives us a sense of like, okay, well, you're going to be seeing him about this size, but when you're seeing that he's this big in this film. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a cool way of, of establishing that, which a lot, like the whole movie kind of rides on. So I thought it was very, you know, effective visual storytelling and kind of giving you scale and, and scope. Yeah. Why does uh, the guy turn on the water, Pena? He, maybe he wants to take a bath. <laughs> okay. You know, it's not like he didn't, you know, Paul Rudd didn't get in here for any, you know, grand reason or anything like that. Yeah. You know, like, I'm going to mess his bath up. He that's he lives with those guys and mm -hmm. isn't supposed to be committing crimes, so... Seems a little random. Yeah. Now, the real question is, why didn't he lock the door? Nowhere near as random as the, the, as the disco party. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's the deal at 159 with him breaking the tile? Is that suit, like, super strong or something? Right, so that's the thing is that with the when the smaller he gets, the stronger he gets. Mm -hmm. So you know he has the power of like when he's tiny of like twenty men or something. So that's just a good way, you know, in the writing that that we're learning. Okay, there's he's not going to get hurt. He's tiny, but he's doing damage. He's not going to get hurt. And then Douglas has a line right there. Guess you're tougher than you thought. Right. 
right? Just to kind of you know help clarify that. Um, how does this? But the thing uh, you how does this work with his voice? I didn't understand that. So, is Michael Douglas watching him right now? How's this working? So that's is we don't we don't know yet, and that's kind of one of the fun things of it too. Is it's not just blatant and laid out for you. It's a, it's a very carefully designed sequence. It's so funny. Like I can't tell you what. <laughs> you know, uh, lay in font is, but, um, the way that, the, the way that this sequence is, la- it's very well laid out cause it's constantly that Norm Holland thing of the lean forward moment or the mystery box or whatever. It's con you're constantly getting like a new little bit of information. So it's not just action. You're constantly getting new information. So it's like, Oh wait, hold on. He's super tough. Hold yeah. on. There's a guy talking to him. Hold on, you know, like you're just kind of being brought more and more into it. And you're being given little hints. You're being shown that he can go through glass, that he can go through walls, that he can he can propel himself with mouse traps. You're just seeing that he kind of has the raw abilities to do stuff that that becomes a big part of the action later on. Nice. Um, and something that you picked up on that I didn't that I thought was really cool that kind of shows how you can subliminally. And I was wanted to skip this, and you were like, "No, there's something to talk about here." But the very beginning this almost montage thing of him getting the suit on, yeah. you know, of, of the, the, the parts. So we show that it's not just like, it's very easy to just cut to him in the suit, but just, I think having those little bits, maybe there's a version where it goes on for five minutes, but those little bits of it being a little bit of a process to get him there, I think is, is cool in kind of helping engage the audience. It is very cool. My impression when I saw it the first time is that it was, the whole storytelling was like too choppy to cut up. Like it, it was. I would. The film was so ahead of me. Like I still wanted to enjoy some of the things that he was playing with and putting on and figuring out that they already mm-hmm. moved on. Like I didn't have enough time the first time to really understand what he was doing with the helmet there. Like you see, looking at an iPhone. No, it doesn't look like an iPhone. It looks like some electrical device that he's hooked up to that to do some measuring. All these mm-hmm. thoughts I couldn't really fully form because the shot was already done and we were in the next thing. And right. So I felt very rushed watching this whole sequence. There's so much cool stuff and they're sort of just rushing through it, which I suspect mm-hmm. happens when you're like really editing and people keep saying it needs to be faster. It needs to be faster. Like we can't wait for anything because it's, we need to keep the attention up of the audience. I feel like, instead of doing it this way, just explore this even more. Okay, so something fun about that. So I, I kind of felt the same way rewatching it. Like infamously, Ant-Man is the scene that they, infamously, in every frame of painting that he compares to Star Wars. Right. Of him like using his powers and how the pacing of Star Wars you know, is, is much more effective and indulgent for the audience and the film's emotional journey. Yeah. Which this movie, and I was just watching it like it's, you know, like Bat. I feel like, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman films, like, had that sense of scope and grandness that this movie could have had, but the whole thing felt, all of it feels like just kind of very rushed, like whatever, like, let's hope, I like, hope we don't, we don't bomb on, <laughs> on this one, let's get through it, because it had a very troubled production history, which we can, we can talk about in, in a moment, but yeah, that's interesting that I, I felt the same way. Now, just to give that context, Fen, do you know the filmmaker that, that brought this project into existence, who was, uh, since 2005, going to make it? I don't. And, can, and we, I also sent him the briefcase scene to kind of see if that gave him any clues as to the clear, the clear taste of that director that maybe remained 
yeah, in this. No, I don't. Do you want to make any guesses what director might have been attached that you are a, a, a noted fan of and in, in whose work you speak about? Uh, uh, John Favreau. <laughs> well, he did Iron Man. Um, I know. That's... One and two. So it's uh, Edgar Wright. Really? Yes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so Edgar Wright had, you know, wanted to do an Ant-Man film and pitched the studio on it, made a fun little reel. But this was in 2005 before the Marvel Cinematic Universe was really even defined. I, I feel like that, that precedes Iron Man even. Yeah. So he just wanted to do an, an Ant-Man film forever and had this really cool, you know, had realized all this really fun, cool stuff into it. And I can't help but suspect watching it that... He ended up, it ended up, they ended up parting over creative differences. And I guess this was maybe, maybe it was after Guardians of the Galaxy, because I feel like James Gunn made some comments about it. Josh Sweden made some famous, you know, it's like, oh, it's tough to see two people you care about go their own ways, you know, Marvel and, and Edgar Wright, but it just wasn't going to work um, to do it the way he wanted, which I can only imagine had a lot more of that indulgence you're talking about and a lot more, I mean, obviously a lot more personal style and a lot more, you know, not worrying about the canon of it so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, so, I, I, I could see that. I think there's some real genius in there, some really clever things. Like that record scratch, I think is my favorite record scratch of all times because it's kind of <laughs> making fun of this overused clam that you do a record scratch if something goes away. And he's actually <laughs> literally hitting his balls on the on the needle. And that's where you hear that sound. And that's the only time you should use a record scratch in any film is when you actually literally have a record scratch. And everything else is, at this point, I think, a complete no-no. And I definitely, when you're watching any video on this guy edits, you will never hear a record scratch. I always go with a pipe drop as my go-to effect for that. If you ever cut any reality stuff for Sven and you make the mistake of using a record scratch. Yeah, that's... That's the first thing that goes out because at this point, I mean, 10 years ago, you shouldn't have used the record scratch. And <laughs> it's coming back now. People are still using it. Um, <laughs> so, so just real quick. So on that. So yeah, I think though, like that's things like the disco scene that are so music dependent and things like fighting in the briefcase where they accidentally activate the iPhone. Like those things just scream Edgar Wright to me. Yeah. You know, so, so you get a sense of that style. And, and so what ended up happening was that uh, the director... Uh, Peyton Reed came in who'd done stuff like Bring It On and um, uh, The Breakup and the Jim Carrey uh, movie Yes Man. Um, okay. So he came in, but he'd actually also, like not unlike Edgar Wright, but had, had been like a big Ant-Man fan as as a youth. Like he was in a band, like a band called The Avengers or some shit. And he, he played it. He was like, the he was Ant-Man, the drummer. I don't know. But anyways, and then Allegedly, Paul Rudd. So Edgar Wright cast Paul Rudd. So obviously, there was like a comedic tone they were going for, mm -hmm. uh, which is maybe the Deadpool connection. And then, you know, Paul Rudd allegedly wrote the script with Adam McKay, which mm. is very weird, who had been talked about directing and just ended up helping out with the script. So that's why I think a lot of the humor kind of made it through and and survived because yeah. you know the the comedic director of Vice. I also noticed the aesthetics of this film like if you look at these shots in the bathtub 56 that's all cgi that whole environment was created in a 3d space in a computer 
and that obviously has a lot of advantages because you can whip the camera in any spot around mm -hmm. but i the downside for me is it's just when you look at it aesthetically it just doesn't feel authentic or rich it just feels somewhat flat even though they put a lot of stuff in there like the bathtub is real dirty and you can see the grime there's like a, a rack there and there's the the plunger and all that stuff and hairs later on it's mm -hmm. i don't know i mean i think you could have done this shot practically and it would have been such a great shot to do with a just putting the character in there and yeah make made it feel way more like give it some more weight and gravity and authenticity yeah it's tough i mean yeah it's just that tough that tough thing of like how far can you go with it and when do you realize the vfx aren't aren't fully there i mean to me i thought it was fun because because it works story-wise yeah it does you know like it was fine because it's you know i mean that's a tough thing but as long as the story's being told well but on the other end of that did you see downsizing the alexander payne film with I, matt damon yes yes yeah it's funny because i felt like a lot of that was almost hindered by the practicals well, a little bit the practicals, but then not so much the practicals as when they weren't practicals. Like, he just seemed like a director, and especially with that budget. Like, it's funny. I feel like it's such a more engaging... It's, I hadn't thought about it, but watching this scene in the Marvel movie, to me, was just a much more, I don't know, fun way. Like, they just these this little bit explores the concept as the small size in a much more... A very, very, very different way. Yeah than that but yeah a lot of that it's like i don't know for some reason it was just like wow he really it's like when you see a clint eastwood movie you know when you see the vfx it's like whoa this is just not a director that <laughs> really cares or maybe i'm sure if alexander payne got to work on a marvel film you know he would have that team to to help him with it but yeah anyways yeah I bumpy production history to a marvel film well don't cross your fingers mm. <laughs> this is as close as you'll ever get because uh, um, I think he would have, he would have what's missing here. Yeah, and that's what, and that was the tough thing is realizing. Okay, so we're not getting the auteurs for these, for these films, which is something you maybe have more room with in, yeah. in the DC universe. So, and I mean, I don't want to hop on this, but I'll make one more comment about it. I feel like these films are making a deal with the audience, where they're saying, "Look, this is the kind of aesthetics that you're going to get." But in return, you're going to get a fast-paced, moving film that's going to give you every spectacle in the book because we can do it in the computer. And that's going to be really efficient. And then you can just be okay with it. Or um, I think some people would rather appreciate it more if it had a little bit more weight to it. And, and you can really um, experience it more. It feels like I'm I'm missing out on an, on the experience. It's just sort of a summary version of it. Yeah, and I would argue that I feel like Black Panther probably has room to do that more. Yeah. Right, because you have like an auteur that got it, and there's just much, much more of that, I feel like. And there's probably a couple other MCU films. Like, I don't feel like Iron Man was rushed. Yeah, um, Iron Man, I think, is a good one. By the way, I have seen some Marvel movies, and Iron Man is one of them. <laughs> okay, but, but, the, but I mean, to your point, I think, I think that's this, this movie more than any other is, feels very, very, very rushed. 
in that regard, and I would say maybe even Captain America falls into the category you're talking about, the f- the first one, but I think a lot, just because of the production history of this, they had a totally unknown character, and it was like, it could have been like a really bad sour flop, so in it you see like a lot of places where they're really, they just, you know, they were just like, whatever, like, <laughs> just make the, you know, we can't take any chances on, on this one, just make it friendly, and hopefully it makes over $500 million, so we can call it a success. Which it did, I think. Yeah, now there's a sequel, and now Ant-Man uh, seems to be being teased in the uh, Endgame as the the missing link to save the day. Nice. But uh, let us know what you think of the Marvel movies, any insights you might have if you're going to see Avengers Endgame. If you think if you can get Sven to watch all like 22 films leading up to Avengers Endgame before its release on Friday... Oh, is the good um, news that Endgame means, well, after that, it's over, we're done? Yeah, there will on? never be another Marvel movie after oh, that. thank God. Yeah. No, it's the end of Phase 3, Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man Homecoming's already announced. Black Panther 2's already announced. Mm. There will be more, Sven. There will be more. It's just the end of this phase, so there might be a big death at the end of it. You might lose Captain America, might lose Iron Man. It's all up in the air. Wow. Might have lost half the cast as it is. All right. Uh, well, where can people make comments if they would like to, Sven? Thisguyedits.com slash comment. It's Very a cool. good film. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not hating. I'm definitely entertained. I think it has a nice little tongue-in-cheek feel to it. Little guy, Ant-Man. I mean, that's kind of the superhero where you're like, really? Okay, this is, <laughs> this is your superpower. Um, but <laughs> they know and they make fun of it. I have a feeling it's because of Deadpool that... They now have the freedom to be tongue in cheek in these films. And well, I mean, again, this is this preceded Deadpool, but it <laughs> the, the and they were very. I mean, yeah. the whole thing is that the Marvel films have always been tongue in cheek, and I think that I mean, one, you have Favreau directing the original, but that's one of the things I've heard Shane Black, who directed Iron Man three, talk about is what he loves about the Marvel films is that they're constantly stepping on rakes and they're constantly playing with the idea that, you know, these just finding ways to make the characters fallible. And he has this great example of them having this in one, I think Captain America Civil War, where they talk about this huge, they have like Thor, Captain America, and I think like the winter soul, I like three huge dudes just like in like a Pinto or something like that. Like, there's just all these ways that they kind of, you know, have them just stepping on bananas all the time, which... Witty. Has, and I think, and honestly, I think that what you're talking about comes from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because now you're seeing it in everything. Like, every trailer for every movie, it's like, oh, look, it's they're a little cheeky, too. Yeah. And it's something that they, they really cracked with these movies. I mean, you know, casting Downey Jr., like, all that... Uh, Leaves room for for the yeah. lightness in it, but um, wittiness but anyways, should never fully replace character depth and real drama and vulnerability, that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course, and they do. And this one, I think, is you know, it has Michael Pena has this really hilarious uh, role in this one. Maybe maybe Sven will check Ant Man out and let us know what he thinks. Yeah, but I'll anyhow, or we'll check out any of the masterpieces we couldn't even fucking name <laughs> um all right <laughs> so oh man we're neither experts so funny. either but all those films we talk it's so funny because they're so they're like we i was we were so into that stuff so many at least i was like in film school and stuff so many years ago so yeah. so the disconnect in the way that media has changed and the stuff that's kind of being shoved and thrown at us of course i'm more familiar with like the directing history of ant-man than um, the different versions of Leia and Font Terrible, 
which is uh, scary. So hopefully the new Criterion channel changes that. And it's proud owners, AT&T, I think. Oh, man. All right. So if you enjoyed what you're hearing here on the podcast, if, you have, if you'd like to help us, enrich us, enlighten us, please do so in the message boards. And thank you for telling your friends about the podcast. I don't see Avengers. I don't think they need our help. Uh, and thank you for Curtis for the music. And we, as Sven always says... Happy Easter Monday and happy editing. <laughs> Next week, we're doing the Battle of Winterfell. Stand inside phones and TV shows about tweakers. There's no same zone to put your head between the speakers. There's no same zone to put your head between the speakers. Wow. Guess it'll be Easter Tuesday by the time most people hear it. All right. I have 45 minutes. Surprisingly little compared to the fact that we like stumbled <laughs>